Vince Lombardi was the head coach of the Green Bay Packers, and he is famously quoted as saying, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. He later went on to say, there is no room for second place. There is only one place in my game, and that is first place. And that's the way our world is structured, isn't it? We're told we must succeed, we must make something of ourselves. We have to do whatever it takes to make it to the top. Sure, go ahead and do that the right way, but don't be afraid to go after what you want. Use any legal trick in the book. Don't use people, but don't be afraid to step over them or even step on them to get what you want. Because we've got to climb that corporate ladder. We've got to move up the ranks. We've got to achieve the promotion. We've got to get the raise. The only way to go is up. Because our society values winners, doesn't it? Nobody throws a parade for the team in second place. Nobody remembers the person who just finished off the podium. You achieve the second highest rank in the military, chances are nobody ever heard your name. According to the great American philosopher Ricky Bobby, if you ain't first, you're last. That's life in 21st century today. But it's the same truth in the Roman world as well. The Roman Empire was an honor-shame culture. You did whatever you could to achieve more and more honor for yourself. Now, you wanted to be seen as powerful, important, prestigious, in command, and in control. You wanted to be sought after. And so, Romans pursued power, glory, and prestige at all costs, because for the Roman world, that was honor. So Romans, of all the social stratuses and different areas of life, participated in a social game that in Latin is called the cursus honorum, or the honors race, the pursuit of honor. What mattered was how well known you were. So you leveraged everything you had to get just a little more fame. You wanted to be seen in the right company, so you would join civic organizations and religious cults that had power and influence. You would pay for sacrifices at the temple to maybe Athena or to the imperial cult. You had to get your name out there. So maybe you would pay for a new public works like a fountain or refurbishing a bridge that leads into the city. You might sponsor gladiatorial games or chariot races. People would leverage all of their money and then go out and even borrow more to buy influence and power. They would use whatever they had then to make loans to the right people so that later they could call in favors. And all of this was done with the hope of moving up the ranks, achieving more power. And so they played the game in whatever way they could. You might do it through politics. You would start off as a questor, kind of like a city treasurer. And then you would make sure that you threw contracts the right way to the right people who could help you out. And then maybe after spending a couple of years as a questor, you tried to move up the political ranks to Adile, and then Tribune, and then Praetor, and up and up and up you would go until one day you hoped to maybe sit in the Roman Senate. And along the way, you had to beat off rivals who were constantly trying to one-up you or discredit you or spend more money than you had. You might seek to do it through the military. You would rise through the ranks to become a general and command troops and respect and fear. 
Or maybe you would do this by rising through the religious ranks. You would join a religious group and you'd work your way up to being the high priest, maybe for a religious organization to one of the gods or for one of the imperial cults. Regardless of how you did it, the result was the same. All of these positions were gained through perception, power, political favor. Honor was about the perception of others. And so participation in this race would always be seeking to outdo other people and put them down in the process. You see, honor was all about keeping others happy and looking good to them so that more and more people would know you. You did all of these things so that you might get ahead. And so in the Roman world, success was always achieved by doing more and more, by outdoing your competition and putting them down, by grasping at just about anything that you could get a hold of and then leveraging what you could get to get more and more and more. And in that world, the idea of humility would be considered shameful. Because you have to do whatever it takes to win. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. And so imagine hearing these words as a Christian living in a Roman context. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul's words here in Philippians chapter 2 are countercultural, so much so to the point that those in the crowd listening to this letter being read might be scoffing. Put others ahead of ourselves? Really? I mean, Paul, don't you know how our society works? Do nothing out of ambition? I mean, who's going to look after me if I don't? In humility, count other people as better. What are you talking about? What will people think about me if I don't promote myself? I want you to imagine that you are at the top of your profession. You've reached the heights of success. Maybe you're the CEO or CFO of a company. You're a partner with your name on the firm. You're a top-level executive. You're teacher of the year. You're project lead. You are times person of the year. It's your face on the cover. Imagine being at the heights of success and then stepping down that ladder to serve instead as a volunteer, sorting mail, making coffee, delivering memos. You go from being the top dog to the bottom of the barrel. From your name on the building to, I'm sorry, who are you again? Most of us don't want to live in that reality, do we? But Paul here calls us to something and it's a verse that's incredibly hard for us to read. He says, do what Christ did. For if you're united with Christ, if you share in the Spirit, then your priorities have got to change. If you follow Jesus, then have that same attitude, that same way of being and thinking and acting and feeling as Jesus does. 
be like Christ, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped a hold of. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul makes it plain. Jesus started at the very top of the ladder, being in very nature God. There is nowhere to go up from there. But what does God do? He humbles himself. Rather than self-promotion, it's self-humility. He starts going down that ladder of success. Jesus humbled himself by releasing his grasp on divinity, making himself nothing. He humbled himself by becoming a servant, by becoming a person, by becoming obedient even to the point of death, and then the lowest of the low, the worst in Roman eyes, even death on a cross. And I don't think we can comprehend just how powerful of a symbol the cross is to the Romans. You see, for Christians, it's a, it's a symbol of God's sacrifice, of God's love, of God's forgiveness, of the lengths God wants to go to to save his people. But to the Romans, the cross is a symbol of shame. It's a vile death. It's the worst thing the Romans could come up with. They reserved it for traitors and dissidents and brigands and pirates. They took someone out to die and they put their death on display for all to see. And then they point up and they say, see this? Don't be like this or this will happen to you. Maybe the best comparison for us would be something like having to watch The Hunger Games. It's death on display to dissuade you from ever thinking that you could have power. This is what happens to people who don't toe the line, who don't play the game, who don't bow down to power. Jesus didn't follow that typical path of self-promotion and self-aggrandizement that the Romans expected. Instead of participating in the cursus honorum, that pursuit of honor, Jesus instead personified the, the cursus pedorum, or the pursuit of worsening, of lowering himself. Jesus intentionally stepped down that ladder of success. And then Paul challenges us to do the same. Be like Christ. Jesus gave it all up, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for the sake of you and me. And it's a shameful thing. And the people hearing those words would see it as a shameful thing. But it becomes Jesus' moment of glory. Indeed, Paul makes that very important claim. Verses 9 through 11 are, very, are just dependent upon what just happened in 6 through 8. Because it begins with the word, therefore. Precisely because Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death being hung on a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I want us to stop and think for just a minute this morning. 
What does this teach us about God? You see, this was an early hymn of the Christian church. They probably sung it on Sundays. And Paul quotes it here to get his point across. And each time that the Christians would stop and sing these lyrics, imagine what would go through their mind. As they live in a world that values success, they would be reminded that God's way stands in stark contrast to their own. What does this teach us about God? Well, it reminds us that God's view of proper position, power, and priorities are opposite of what our world claims as its own. You see, in Rome, you leverage your position and influence to move up the ladder, but, but Jesus, he gave up his position for our benefit. Rome would use its power to gain more and more. It would send out its legions to conquer territory. It would hold its people in fear, and anyone who stepped out of line would be punished. But Jesus set aside that power, set aside his power, and he humbled himself to the punishment of Rome, even to the point of shame by dying on a Roman cross. Rome saw itself as priority number one, and it would expand its influence and power through military might and political achievement. It would proclaim its greatness through its temples, its conquest, its empire. But to God, humility wins. Jesus, the Son, willingly gave it all up taking on sin and shame that wasn't his own, so that we might be brought back to God. This is no idle thing that God has done. This is no afterthought or backup option. This was God's plan in place before the creation of the world. Humility, sacrifice, crucifixion, that was God's choice. That was God's victory. To show us that the ways of the world are so different from the ways of God. God shows power through weakness. God sin brings salvation through his own shame. God's way might seem ridiculous, but they are the righteousness of God. And as they would sing these lyrics together, they would remind themselves that God will be victorious. And his victory will fly in the face of the values of Rome and the values of our world of the 21st century. And they remind themselves that the whole world will eventually see and know and sing about the victory of God. In Revelation 5, we are given a glimpse of heaven. Right after the letters to the seven churches, we have chapter 4, in which we see the throne room of heaven. We find God seated on the throne, eternally praised and his greatness proclaimed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The living creatures would sing these words to God. And the throne room scene, in many ways, is written to contrast the enthronement of the emperor. You would picture the Roman emperor seated in his cult, in his court, surrounded by his senators and consuls and cronies, and many of the statues have him holding a scroll, ready to either make a pronouncement or to write down his law. And the people would proclaim his greatness and sing his praise. Indeed, temples throughout the Roman Empire would stop to offer sacrifices both for him and to him, asking for his victory and his protection. But here in Revelation 5, we have a scene of God 
who is enthroned far above, who is worshipped eternally, who is mighty and majestic. And John in Revelation wants us to hear that God alone, not an emperor, not a king, not a general, but God alone is the one who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And then we are treated to an incredible scene in Revelation 5, one that stands in contrast to the priorities and powers of the world. And I want to encourage you for a moment, if you want to flip there, you can, but maybe just listen as I read this description. Close your eyes, possibly. Try to visualize the scene in your mind. And let's hear this revelation today. Then I saw, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out on the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons of every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In Revelation 2 and 3, we find a world that is out of sorts. It is full of craziness and chaos, full of turmoil and persecution for God's people. And they are wondering, when will the world be made right? And in Revelation 4, they're reminded that God is seated on the throne and he holds in his hand a scroll of justice that will set things right. But no one can open it. So John weeps. But he is given then words of hope. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
has triumphed. It's already done. He's won. He is the victory. Behold our conquering hero. And so John looks up with the tears starting to dry from his eyes and sees not a lion, but a lamb. A lamb that was slain, wounded, pierced, crucified. But more powerful and more majestic and mightier than anything else in all of creation. And we get a description that is full of symbolism revealing the Lamb's power as being greater than that of Rome and the politics and powers of the day and age. But we're told that this Lamb is worthy. And He is worthy because He was slain. And a small chorus, the four creatures and the 24 elders start up a song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And because you were slain, you purchased for God persons of all different races and tribes and languages and peoples and nations. Praise God. And then thousands of angels join in, hundreds of thousands of angels. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And then we're told that all of creation, every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth and in the sea, all of them joined in worship, singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and glory and honor and power forever and ever. Amen. And as we are treated to the scene, that we are, we are reminded that God's ways are not our ways. If I were in charge, you would see a savage lion and not the slain lamb. But to God... To God they are one and the same. That is power. That is might. That, that is victory. We're reminded that God's version of power is not our vision of power. He has conquered through his own death. We are reminded that God's priorities are different than our priorities. You see, I'm always looking out for number one. Because if you're not first, you're last. But God is looking out for all of creation. Behold the slain lamb, who is the lion of Judah, the victorious one who is worthy, who is honored, who is praised, who is adored, who is glorified for humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does God reveal about himself in these texts? Well, he reminds us that his view of priorities and powers and position are so vastly different than my own and the world's. Really, it's like comparing apples and fighter jets. God's categories are so much grander than the shallow ones we come up with. And that although it might seem upside down and topsy-turvy and the opposite of all we know and value, God's kingdom wins. God will be praised. God is victorious. So what does that mean for us? For you and for me? Well, I've got to stop and remind myself to not place my trust in the priorities of this world. You see, too often my understanding of power and position, my priorities, are shaped by the cultural forces of economics and politics, greed, self-centeredness, control, coveting. But instead, my entire way of being 
should be shaped by my faith in Christ, who had everything but humbled himself for our sake. And through that, God wins. And if the king of the universe sees the world that way, then who am I to think that I know better? Let's pray today. God, we acknowledge that our priorities are often out of place, that they are misplaced and misused and misaligned. God, help us to see with your eyes. Help us to have the same attitude, the same way of being and thinking and feeling and acting as Christ. May we live for you. May we be reminded that no matter what comes, the chaos of our world, the turmoil, and the hardships, that you are God, that you win, that you are seated on the throne, and that yours is the victory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, the slain lamb. Amen. God bless us today.